1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. A century ago, on 8th of November 1923, the Nazi party attempted to launch a coup in Munich that has come to be known as the Beer Hall Putsch. The Putsch itself was an abject failure but it taught Hitler valuable lessons that would aid his path to power a decade later. Historian Frank McDonough has explored this story in a piece for BBC History magazine, as well as his recent book on Weimar Germany, and Rob Attar spoke to him to find out more.
2: Could we talk a little about Germany prior to the Munich Putsch? What's the situation in the Weimar Republic at this point?
3: Germany went through a number of convulsions in the early period from 1919 to 1923, including the Spartacus Revolt led by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht who were both killed and it, it was the bailout by the Fry Corps that helped the Republic survive then, which was probably a mistake. Then there was the Cap Putsch which was led by a renegade officer, Wolfgang Kapp. He captured Berlin, declared himself the Chancellor. That lasted five days and was put down by a general strike by the workers, not by the army. Then there was the uh, events in Munich, really, which ultimately led to the Munich Beer Hall Putsch. Munich originally had a revolution in 1918, led by the extreme left-winger Kurt Eisner, uh, who became the Prime Minister of a coalition government that was dominated by Social Democrats. He was assassinated in 1919 by a renegade right-wing person who was a member of the Tool Society. Um, and he, he, he got a mild sentence by the same judge, apparently, who was in the trial of Hitler in the Munich Beer Hall coup. So Munich... Uh, after that, then went into a kind of revolution after Eisner was shot and ended up with two socialist governments. The first socialist government in 1919 was a sort of known as the poet's. Regime And they, they sort of, they had a strange group of people, a group of poets. And it lasted about a week, you know. They were doing things like saying everyone can draw a £100 out of the local bank. They, they banned history in universities, but allowed everyone to go to university without any qualifications. They had a foreign minister who was off his head, really. I mean, he declared war on Switzerland. And he complained because the previous... Foreign Secretary of Bavaria had run away with the key to the toilet. (laughs) So that didn't last long. Then they had a much more left-wing government, which was much more brutal. And then we get the return of the Freikorps, who ally with the army, with the prime minister in exile, and they destroy this socialist government. And Hitler is in Munich at that time because he's still in the army in a kind of role. We don't exactly know what he's doing, but it seems as though he's some kind of surveillance officer. Then he becomes an education officer and gives lectures against Jews and socialism. Now Bavaria switches and it becomes a right wing citadel where all kinds of people can go. A good example of this is Organisation Consul. That's an assassination group led by a guy called Heerhart. Who pick out politicians To assassinate uh, They assassinate Matthias Hertzberger He's the guy who signed the, the Armistice, Walter Rathenau The foreign minister, he's assassinated In Berlin, they have a whole list Of people they're going through And so they're given kind of amnesty In Bavaria, so Bavaria is a good place For Hitler to be now Hitler establishes himself on the beer hall Circuit and gives speeches in all These beer halls, and so the, the Nazi party grows, it's only a Munich phenomenon really but it grows to about 45,000 members something like that and Hitler in 1922 hears about Mussolini's march on Rome and he thinks oh you know maybe we could have a march on Berlin starting in Bavaria so he starts to enter clandestine discussions with uh, three people one of them is called Gustav von Carr he's the state commissioner of Bavaria very right-wing, Hans von Caesar, he's the head of the Bavarian police, and also Otto von Lassau, he's the commander of the Reichswehr in Bavaria, the German army, and so those three start to discuss with Hitler the idea of a coup. And it sort of all sort of grows up during the Great Inflation where Hitler starts to say, look, now's the time to strike. And when Stresemann gets rid of passive resistance, that's the moment when they think we'll try and have a coup. They give Hitler the impression that they're going to go along with his coup until von Lossau goes to Berlin a, a couple of weeks before Hitler acts. And the German army tell him, look, there's no way that you're going to have a coup in Berlin and we're not going to put it down. The army will put your coup down. So give up on the idea. If there's going to be a coup, we have to lead it from Berlin, OK? So he goes back. He tells this to von Kahn. He says, look, there's no coup, right? It's over, right? But he's going to give a speech on the uh, 8th of November in a, a, a Munich beer hall called the Keller and Hitler decides, you know, he sort of thinks that they're, they're double crossing me here. I need to intervene myself. So he goes to gate crash Von Karl's speech. So Von Karl's speaking in, in the beer hall. And then Hitler's flanked by his uh, brown shirts, uh, stormtroopers. He bursts into the Burger Brau Keller. He jumps on a chair. He puts a gun in the air, fires it into the ceiling. He says, the national revolution has begun. And then he shepherds von Karr, also on the stage at the time is von Seisser and von Lossow, and he takes them into an anteroom nearby and tells them, you know, you've got to support this coup. They go back on stage, according to the eyewitnesses, they do go back on stage and say, yes, we are supporting, uh, Herr Hitler's coup. That's what they say. Later on, they say they had to do it. They were under gunpoint. They had, they, it was under duress. They bring, Ludendorff, who's who's also involved, the f- the famous general from the First World War, who supports Hitler, he comes down to the Braukeller. Hitler stupidly leaves him with the three co-conspirators in the room. He he, he leaves the f- put down a kind of rebellion in other parts of Munich. And of course, he lets them go, and as soon as they're let go, they suppress Hitler's so-called it's actually a joke the the coup never happens he doesn't even take control of a beer hall and by the middle of the night you know, the army are back in control. The police are back in control. And he decides to have this futile march into Munich in, in front of the the Feldenhaller, as it's called, on platz And waiting for him there are armed police who fire on, on, the, on the Nazi group. Sixteen of them are killed. They become martyrs for the cause. Hitler falls down. He breaks his shoulder blade, dislocates it. He's taken away, goes to a friend's house, and he's arrested and then follows Hitler's trial for the Munich Beer Hall Pooch.
2: So, clearly, as you've outlined, the Pooch doesn't get anywhere near to success, but did Hitler and the Nazis have any kind of plan for what they hoped to do if things
3: went well? Yes, they thought they would take over the government like Mussolini, like, you know, all the politicians would cave in Hitler was designated to become the new Chancellor Ludendorff was going to be Minister of War so they had Cabinet posts, these other people, Carr Lhasa, they were going to be given posts in this national government. So that was the idea. It was going to become, you know, a right-wing national socialist dictatorship then, in 1923. So that's what they thought. But, you know, it never got off the ground. And, you know, Hitler, in his later career, is known
2: as someone who's perhaps quite an astute politician, certainly in the 1930s. He acts in a way that brings his party a great deal of success. Why, why do you think he misjudged it so badly in 1923? I think
3: he just had this idea that the the, the Weimar Republic was deeply unpopular. These November criminals could fall from power and no one would care. And he thought that, you know, bold action, as Mussolini showed, might work in Germany. And the regime was unstable. There was great inflation. You know, the government was, was in a perilous position. So I think he just thought the time's ripe now to strike. As you, again, have outlined, the Munich Putsch wasn't much of a success, but
2: did it cause any alarm to the Weimar government?
3: Not really. If you look at how Stresseman sort of reacts, Stresseman, who's the Chancellor at the time, gives a national address, and he says, if this coup had succeeded, it would have been futile because they had no plan of how to sort out society. They were not experienced in government, and they were just a gang of fools, really. And, And what they were wanting was impossible. You know, Germany can't rearm. The Allies could easily march in and occupy the whole country. And he said, and it's prejudicing, the the you know the restoration of the mark as well so he said in every way it was a waste of time and the last person he said you wanted was somebody like this hitler he said who's just a fanatic with no government experience famously after the putsch hitler
2: is put on trial and this is a really defining moment for his career i wonder if you could talk
3: us through what happened at his trial well, the trial takes place in 1924. It starts in March and it ends in April. And it is a pivotal moment in Hitler's career because Hitler sort of thinks, well, I'm, you know, I'm banged to write it. I'm guilty. I'm going to get some kind of sentence. He was charged with high treason. Now, that carried a, you know, a maximum jail sentence of life imprisonment, even execution, if it was bad enough. So it was a serious charge. He knew he'd have to undergo a a jail sentence, at least. But he thought, in the trial, if it's covered by the world's press, I've got a platform, really. And the judge allowed him a platform to give a speech uh, on the opening day. And on the opening day, he says that he shouldn't be on trial. The people who should be on trial are the November criminals and the president. Uh, Friedrich Herbert, he said, he said, uh, he said, I, I'll be tried, he said, in in the court of justice of eternity. And he said, and they'll acquit me in that court of justice because I'm right. This regime, you know, is is morally corrupt. It's not legitimate and it needs replacing by a government that supports the, the idea of the German people rebuilding the German economy, rebuilding the German army. So he was quite clear, quite a passionate speech. And this was reported around the world in all of the press. And you can see the way Bavarian justice went on. The judge just allowed him to sort of rant on about his own ideas without actually stopping him and contradicting him. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the
1: search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
4: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra.
2: The sentence that Hitler gets for his role in the Munich Putsch is extremely lenient. I mean, considering that he had, this is high treason, how did he get away with such a mild sentence? Well, he got
3: five years, but he was allowed parole after six months. He'd already served, you know, uh, uh, six months already. And he only served uh, until December of that year and he was given parole. While he was in prison, uh, he lived the life of Riley. You know, he, he had he had his own room. He was given sort of the allowance of having many visitors, as many visitors as he wanted. The the governor allowed him to have a, you know a, a typewriter brought in that was bought for him by a S called Beckstein who co-owned a piano-making company. You know, and he had all of his cronies around him. R- Rudolf Hess was in there transcribing some of his book. So it was, it was the life of Riley. It re- literally was, you know, three meals a day. You know, wine was brought in. He didn't drink wine, but, you know, his cronies could drink the wine and so on. So it was incredibly lenient the way he was treated. And it allowed him to develop his ideas. And while he was in prison, he wrote the early draft for what became Mein Kampf. And he also started to think about what he'd done wrong in the run-up to the Munich Beer Hall Putsch. He decided that, you know, he needed to be a proper politician. And he realised, he thought, the Weimar Republic is too strong to be overthrown by a group of renegades. They're armed. The army won't turn against them. They don't really support them, he thought, but they're not going to turn against them with with a group of renegades. And the the police were strong as well. So, really, he sort of thought, I'm going to have to go through the legitimate democratic system. And that's what he decided. A crucial decision, really, that the Nazi party would become a nationwide party, not just based in Munich. And... It would fight elections and try to get to power that way. It looked like an impossible dream in 1924. But, of course, within nine years, he'd actually come to power in that way. Amazing, really. Amazing vision and and foresight to see that he might, Come to power in that way, that his, his message might appeal to a, a proportion of the German people. And remember, eventually it did appeal to 13 million Germans of their own free will.
2: So, coming back to this thing you mentioned earlier about him having this really cushy life in prison, what does that say about the Bavarian or the German authorities and
3: their attitude to Hitler? Well, it says that the German authorities did not want to put down the right wing. They wanted actually to encourage it. So in their own, the Bavarians wanted to break away from the Berlin government as well, have a separatist republic themselves. So it fitted in with their own position. We are the renegades within Germany. And it shows that there was great latitude given. You've got a a government here that allows a, a known assassin called Earhart, who runs a group called Organisation Consul, which kills democratic politicians, assassinates them. So he's given sort of haven to extreme right-wingers in in this period. He introduces anti-Semitic legislation, removes Jews from Bavaria to other nearby countries. So It was a place that, you know, you could feel comfortable in being right-wing. So that was a good place to be. It was a great place for Hitler to be. You know, if Hitler had been in Berlin, he'd have been cracked down on much more. He would have had much more difficulty. And nobody supported Nazism in Berlin. Even in 1932 general election, only 1%
2: voted for Hitler. So as you've outlined, while Hitler was in prison, he kind of rethought his approach to gaining power. Did he adjust any other aspects of his political philosophy at this time?
3: Well, I think he outlined his political philosophy in Mein Kampf. He decides, whereas at the start of His prison sentence, he says that, you know, he wants to restore the frontiers of Germany as they existed in 1914. In other words, he was saying we should overthrow the Treaty of Versailles clause by clause. But in Mein Kampf, he changed. He says the frontiers of 1914 are no good for Germany if it wants to become a superpower. He said now we must look at gaining Living space. This is his new gimmick, Lebensraum, in Eastern Europe. And he said that will have to be at the expense of the Soviet Union. So in Mein Kampf, he's actually saying we need to have a war and invade the Soviet Union, which is a radical policy. Nobody actually really lights upon that at the time. It's just left in the book. Nobody lights upon it as like, you know, he suggests that we should invade the Soviet Union in a future war. So his, his foreign policy becomes clearer as a result of it, of his time in prison. He also becomes clear about what he's going to do with the Jews. He wants rid of the Jews from German society. So he talks about a pogrom probably won't work, you know, uh, you know violent pogroms. So we'll get rid of the jews by legislation now that's something that he actually does then he talks about having a pure german people and he 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 says the ideas of eugenicists are important here now he does introduce sterilization a lot of what's in mein kampf he actually carries out when he's in power it's still you know quite a few years
2: after hitler's release before the nazis come to power So considering that gap, how
3: significant would you say the putsch was in the ascent of Nazism? I don't think it was that important, because when you think about it, it didn't threaten the Bavarian government, it didn't threaten the Berlin government, and Hitler's Party was banned, so it didn't actually enhance the Nazi Party in that way. It was reconstituted, you know, in 1926, and progress was slow. In the 1928 elections, the Nazi Party only polls 800,000 votes and gets 12 seats, so it didn't actually lead on then to a, his policy of going to the electorate. Didn't work. It didn't work because he made a mistake. He adopted a, a plan that was put forward by uh, Goebbels and Strasser, Gregor Strasser, who organised the party nationally to have an urban plan where the Nazis tried to take votes from the, the working class. Even now, a lot of people think that the Nazi party was you know, supported by the working class, but it never was. Where the Nazi party broke through was in the rural areas. And Hitler saw this in 28 and he thought, well, there's some decent results in the rural areas. Let's now campaign in those areas and then we'll see how we, how we get on. And they did. It was through the rural campaign between 28 and 30 that the Nazis surged through. It's not the Wall Street crash that makes no impact in the rural area voting patterns. The, the rural voters turn against the local Conservative Party, the the DNVP, and they move towards all these little splinter parties. They have the middle class party, the agricultural party, the farmers party. And it's these groups of voters that move towards Hitler. So when Hitler breaks through, which is 1930, when he gains 107 seats in the Reichstag from 12, and his votes go up to about 7 million, he gains them mainly in small Protestant Rural towns with a population of less than 5,000. He doesn't really break through at all in the big cities. The social democrats and the communists hold sway there. So his, his policy of trying to be in the big cities doesn't work. Nazism is a small town phenomenon at the beginning it's the small towns that turn towards Hitler and they're rural and they haven't seen any cabarets or anything like that and and they're very desolate and you know usual slow pace of life in those areas, it's those voters that break through, he actually brings 2 million voters to vote for the Nazis who've never voted before which shows that he's nurturing his appeal to them eventually he'll go on to break into the big cities in the middle class areas so that the more affluent middle class start to vote for him in 1932.
2: After the Nazis have actually come to power in 1933 how did they memorialize this moment?
3: Oh it's it's even in the 1920s it becomes like one of the Nazi big days the 8th and 9th of November they have like a festival down there you know Hitler he gives a speech in the same beer hall the Burger Braukeller every single year one year in 1939, a bomb goes off. There's a bomb planted uh, that, that year and he survives it. But uh, yes, and they become uh, martyrs. There's a big memorial laid out for these 16 people who were killed in the Munich Beer Hall Pooch. And so it's a big... Kind of in a way Hitler says, you know, that was the sort of starting point of our revolution. Eventually, he says it ca- it carried through when we had the seizure of power. So he sort of says they go back to 1923 when they they seize power. And so these people become martyrs. In Mein Kampf, he lists the sixteen people who are killed in the front part of Mein Kampf. And do you think the importance that the Nazis
2: placed upon the Munich Putsch means that Later on, we've given it more importance than perhaps it should have when there
3: were so many other similar events taking place in early Weimar. The problem with Hitler, the whole Hitler biography phenomenon, is that we know what happens later. So the biographers are interested in elevating his life then. So what you've got is you've got all of his life is in these biographies so people know about all of these incidents and what he was doing so I think it's this Hitler hindsight phenomenon oh he was important later so let's go back and see how important he was then I mean they do that don't they with the Beatles they go back into the Hamburg and the life then you know when they were unknown then And so Hitler's sort of Munich period is a bit like the Beatles in Hamburg he's unknown he's not what he was later so it's just a It's kind of a fascination of looking at his early life.
2: So Frank, why why do you think events like the Munich Putsch and other aspects of Hitler's life are discussed so much? Whereas as you were saying from your book, it, this may not have actually been that significant in early Weimar Germany. I think the problem
3: with the Hitler early life, remember. We don't know that much about Hitler's early life. I mean, his his period in Vienna, for example. It's a complete mystery, really. There's, There's hardly any sources to know what went on. We don't know. His period when he leaves the army is also a bit vague. You know, is he a spy for the army you know, it's a little bit like that. His early life reminds me of Lee Harvey Oswald, where they try to piece together little sort of incidents and magnify them. And especially his early period there, when the, in the Nazi party established, there's a good chance that the German army actually set up the, the Nazi party and bankrolled it. You know, but we haven't got the definite... Uh, information on it and there's been books that have been written about it Thomas Weber for example writes a great book about Hitler's life after he comes out of the army and he's really unclear about you know even though he's researched it meticulously even he's unclear about whether is he he a spy for the army is he staying in the army because he's getting paid why does the Nazi party have so much money you know when the Nazi party starts you know he rents a beer hall for you know a thousand marks or something like that and even British intelligence sends reports back saying we think that Hitler's getting sponsored maybe by the army they say maybe by big business
0: that was Frank McDonough. You can read his article on The Putsch in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. And his book, The Weimar Years, Rise and Fall 1918-1933, was recently published by Apollo. If you'd like to explore the history of Weimar more broadly, do listen to our interview with Frank for our Everything You Wanted to Know series, which you can access in your podcast feed or at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by
1: Jack Bateman.